Good morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by Chompio.com, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania, by St. Aloysius Church and School, located in Jackson, New Jersey. Lots of stuff we're going to get to today in the world of baseball sports and Unified America. Just a reminder, if you're interested, you want to be part of the program, please, it belongs to you, so just give the show a call if you want, 732-364-3598. You can also comment on Facebook Live, on Periscope, or on YouTube during the premiere version of the video. Last week we spoke a little bit about some of the interesting things going on in the world of sports, and of course as we are contingent talking right now about the baseball playoffs. I spent a little time breaking down the National League bullpens and you know the thing that's going to separate which team is going to come out or which two teams are going to represent the National League in regards to wild card pretty similar to any other playoff race and I hate to sound rhetorical when I say this is wins. So there's going to be some ups and downs from here throughout the rest of the month of August into September and throughout the end of September to the end of the season, and whatever teams end up with the most wins obviously will make it into the playoffs. A couple of different things we're going to talk about today. The, the single season home run record for each team. I'm going to break that down because I think there's some fascinating facts about that. You'd be surprised of some of the players that own the single season home run record for an individual team, and you'd be surprised with some of the totals of what a single season home run record is for an individual team. I wanted to spend a little time talking about Billy Hatcher, his dominance in the postseason, a little bit about him in 1986, but most importantly, Billy Hatcher in 1990, because if it wasn't for Billy Hatcher in the 1990 World Series, I don't think the Reds win. Jose Rio won the World Series MVP that year, but the impact that Billy Hatcher had, he was one of the differences between the Reds beating the Oakland Athletics that year. And, you know, for those of us who have watched too much time pass and realize it's now been, what, 20, you know, 29 years. Next year it'll be 30 years since the Reds beat the Oakland Athletics in the World Series. I think we start to forget how much of an upset that was. The Cincinnati Reds, not a team expected to come out of the National League as a dominant force, end up winning the division wire to wire in kind of a surprising fashion, but there were severe underdogs when they faced the Oakland Athletics that year. At the time, the defending World Series champions, the team that had won in 89, but also was very much expected to win the 1988 World Series. So it was an upset, and it took performances like that of Jose Rio, but more importantly, Billy Hatcher, for them to do the things they did and being able to get through the Oakland Athletics as easily as they did. So we'll talk about that. I'm also going to bring up Steve Young. Talk about his career. And you talk about him now as obviously a broadcaster, a guy who is well accomplished outside of his career in the sport, a pro football Hall of Famer. But you wonder, was it a guarantee that he was going to get a chance to do the things that he ended up doing on the football field? Steve Young, once again, you talk about the Reds in 1990, but you also talk about Steve Young and his career, which happened a little while ago. The more years that go by, the more years you, you, know, you realize that Steve Young is removed from the National Football League. You say, hey, he was just that gifted and was heading to the Hall of Fame either way. We're going to talk about 
reasons why that may not have happened. He may not have gotten that opportunity. And obviously the major reason that I'm bringing this up is you can talk about Steve Young's career in Major League Baseball and how it started after the age of 30. Now, it wasn't the first game that he ever played in the National Football League. Obviously, he was drafted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, had a chance to be their starter for a season and a year that the Buccaneers went 2-14, and 14, but spent a series of years as Joe Montana's backup and didn't become a full-time starter again in the National Football League until after he was 30 years old. So we talked about, obviously, a quarterback in the National Football League right now that ends up retiring before the age of 30. And that, of course, is Andrew Luck. I'm not breaking any news when we're talking about this. Uh, there's some aspects of it that I do want to touch on. Hopefully not the major ones. Hopefully not the ones that have been repetitive. Hopefully the ones that you haven't heard over and over again. And obviously it was a shock to hear that Andrew Luck was retiring. And I think the report had come out during the preseason game with Andrew Luck on the sidelines. And word had been out by the time the game ended, Andrew Luck ends up announcing his retirement. But before that, the Colts fans, the ones, maybe the, the, the lesser version of the Colts fans, maybe, if you're a, a good Colts fan and you love Andrew Luck and you respect what he did for the team and for the league, you, know, you may not want to put yourself in the same shoes as the ones that were booing Andrew Luck when he got off the field. But as we look back, and take a couple days to realize and look at what has just happened. There are some interesting aspects of Andrew Luck retiring in a way, shape, or form that he did. Now, the most important thing you could say is the biggest fact. Andrew Luck is in control of his own body. And if Andrew Luck decides that he doesn't want to play football anymore or decides that the injuries that he has suffered over the course of his career in the National Football League are a little bit too much for him, then I think it's a fair enough assessment that he can make, and he's the general of his own brain and has the right to call quits whenever he wants to. I think that's fair. But we can talk about the way that it happened. The Indianapolis Colts over the last couple of years have gotten better. They've gotten a stronger offensive line. Andrew Luck had one of his best seasons last year when he was, for the most part, healthy for the first time in a long time. So the Indianapolis Colts coming into this season were considered the favorite to win the AFC South, one of the favorites to represent the American Football Conference in the Super Bowl this year. And the Colts, as they're planning for this season, were expecting Andrew Luck to be part of it. So you have to probably understand if we're playing, you know, uh, you know, philosophical understanding and psychology here with Andrew Luck, you'd probably get the sense that. This wasn't something that he had thought about for a long time. In other words, he didn't come into the offseason saying, hey, I'm going to get myself ready for the season. And just a couple weeks before the start of the National Football League season, I'm going to go out there and retire. So something must have happened within the last couple weeks or perhaps a couple days before that have, had led Andrew Locke to his decision. Because I don't think anybody had really planned or would have planned to do it in the manner, in the way, shape, or form that he did. So from that perspective, it's probably one of the things that you're not going to see many times over the course of the National Football League history. And I hate to throw this comparison out there because I don't know if it's necessarily a fair one, but if you think of Mickey Mantle, 
1968 offseason, 1969 spring training. You got a sense that at some point it was going to come to an end. The legendary career of Mickey Mantle, which you know it started in 1951, and obviously one of the greatest players of all time, one of the greatest Yankees ever. And it's amazing to be able to say that because you talk about the God likes of DiMaggio and Ruth and Garrick. And Mickey Mantle certainly is in that group. But the 1969 season is getting ready. And you saw something very similar happen to what happened with Andrew Luck. Mickey Mantle not in his best health, but different from Luck. Was certainly past his prime, was not expected to be the Mickey Mantle of old. Announcing before the season starts that he's going to retire. So there are, there is a precedent set where players have done this before. And, you know, Joe DiMaggio announced his retirement after the 1951 season. You know, he didn't go to spring training. As we hit what we'll call the opening point here at a basketball show, a lot of fuel left in the show today. A reminder, you want to be involved in the show, it belongs to you, like I said. Comment on Facebook Live, Periscope, or YouTube Premiere. But retirements in sports, especially when we're talking about the NFL, can happen with the drop of a dime. And the amount of negligence that was involved with the Indianapolis Colts and their organization and the way it was run up until Chris Ballard took over as a general manager there was you know, reprehensible. And the way that he ended up dealing with all the injuries that he had because of the negligence of the team to not put an offensive line around him, to sign players like Frank Gore and Andre Johnson and trade a number one overall pick for Trent Richardson and not invest in an offensive line that you need to protect an asset, a franchise player, a guy who has a chance to be one of the best quarterbacks ever like I said, was absolutely reprehensible. So the fact that the Colts, at least from a public standpoint, are not taking any heat for Andrew Luck's sudden retirement, I don't feel bad for the Colts. I don't look at the Colts as a series of good guys and an organization that was well run and deserved great things and just should have gotten Andrew Luck for as long as he as he needed to because they treated Andrew Luck like crap. They were they got the biggest gift in the world, and of course it was unfortunate at the time. Peyton Manning, the Hall of Fame quarterback or future Hall of Fame quarterback of the Colts, that they were gifted to have in the first place, ends up getting hurt in a season right before Andrew Luck is going to be that top player available in the next draft. Obviously, Manning's impact on that team led them to be 2-14 that year, and I believe they were 0-14 before they won their last two games or something like that. But to have Andrew Luck fall in your lap like that, have the ability to trade Peyton Manning and allow him to go to Denver and get something back in return for it and have your next franchise quarterback for what you could expect to be in the next 10 to 15 years were gifts that were put in the pocket and under the Christmas tree of the Indianapolis Colts. And they take this gift and they essentially just shred it up and don't care about it. They don't protect it. They don't make sure that this player who's going to be the franchise quarterback for your next 10 to 15 years is protected with a proper offensive line. And yes, they did it last year. Chris Ballard did a good job by drafting Quentin Nelson and putting the right pieces around Andrew Luck so he could be protected. 
but it was an absolute joke the way the Colts took their pet. Remember Tommy Boy with the, the little biscuit? You know, their pet. They destroyed it. They ripped the pet apart. And you can hear the inner Chris Farley in me as I'm screaming this out there. They treated Andrew Luck like he was that pet, that biscuit of Chris Farley and, and, and Tommy Boy. So the fact that the Colts have not taken enough heat here for Andrew Luck's sudden retirement, I don't think I, I or many people should feel sorry for the Indianapolis Colts. They treated their gift like it wasn't that important to them. They were responsible. They were negligent in the way they protected Andrew Luck. And how many teams over the course of a National Football League history are going to be gifted with one quarterback of a generation for 10 to 12 years and be handed another one? And because of the Colts' negligence, instead of enjoying Andrew Luck for another five, six, seven seasons, maybe even longer, they ruined that opportunity. So it's not Andrew Luck's fault. It was the Indianapolis Colts' fault for the way that they chose to protect him. This copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the Passball Show, JohnPielli.com, and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charge and admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So we're going to jump over to the sport of baseball, and I did want to mention a little bit, talk about Billy Hatcher, because as we get almost 30 years away from the 1990 World Series, like I said, an incredible upset, an upset that we could talk about Lou Pinella and his impact, we could talk about the Nasty Boys in a bullpen and the documentaries that were done about them, but you think of the Reds, who are a wire-to-wire -wire winner, in the National League West that season, there was never any doubts over whether they were going to get to the playoffs. They were off to a good start, and he said, hey, this Cincinnati Reds team might be pretty good. But so could the Dodgers, so could the Giants, so could a handful of other teams in the National League West. The National League West that season didn't really have a team coming out. The Giants had won a division a year before, the Dodgers the year before that. So they were likely favorites if you wanted to talk about one team that had a chance to win that division. But there wasn't a lot of discussion when it comes to the Cincinnati Reds that year. They were a young team, but most importantly, they had a series of players that the expectation was higher in years past. Of course, the Reds had just gotten over to Pete Rose mess. Pete Rose, who was managing that team up until he was told by Major League Baseball he wasn't allowed to anymore, ends up being banned for life and still is to this day, obviously took a little bit of a, a toll on that team and that organization. Mark Schott, the owner, who you know was, was not necessarily one of the greatest owners in the history of professional sports, but you know guys like Eric Davis and Barry Larkin, had emerged as pretty good players. Davis battling through injuries. Larkin was just at the beginning of his career where he ended up becoming a Hall of Famer. But you look at the series of players that the Reds had on that team, and a lot of them were journeyman players, but also 
players that ended up filling good roles. And I think Lou Pinella did a good job of taking some of what he learned from his time playing with the New York Yankees in platooning certain players that he, that he had. You know, guys, guys like Todd Benzinger and Hal Morris. You know, it was a solid platoon system that he had there, and he did that over the course of other positions, and obviously learned that from the days that he played when Billy Martin was his manager. Billy Martin, for the exception of star players that he had, he did use a little bit of platoons. Not as much as his mentor in Casey Stengel, but it was all kind of a little bit of a lineage. Stengel to Martin to Pinella who all kind of fed off of each other in regards to ideas that they had, obviously starting with the old professor. So the Reds, probably not expected to do so much that year, end up getting off to a good start. As the middle of the season comes, they're still in first place. They're still holding on and have a considerable lead. And there's no doubt that things are starting to come alive for this team. And the expectations are starting to come that the Reds are going to get into the playoffs. So they get the opportunity to play in a National League Championship Series, the Pittsburgh Pirates, Barry Bonds, Bobby Bonilla, Doug Drayback, Andy Van Slyke. A team that in Pittsburgh was probably expected to beat them. The Pirates had had some decent seasons in 88 and 89, finally won their division as they took the division away from the Chicago Cubs who had won the year before, obviously, the Mets in 88 and 86, and the St. Louis Cardinals in 87 and 85, Cubs in 84. I'm not going to go back any further than that. But the Pittsburgh Pirates had finally arrived, the team that hadn't won the World Series since 1979. And as we sit here in 2019, the Pittsburgh Pirates still have not won a World Series championship since 1979. But in 1990, it looked like it was going to be a good opportunity for the Pittsburgh Pirates to get to the World Series. Played a Cincinnati Reds team that, sure, it, the, they won, they earned their spot in the playoffs, but some people say, hey, maybe they overachieved. Maybe the fact that they were ahead in the standings all season and never had to really fight for very much. Sure, they had to fight at certain points to keep themselves at the level and at the position that they were in, but were never trailing or chasing in their division race the entire season. They go up against a good Pirates team, and maybe the Reds finally get beaten. Well, the Reds had no problem with the Pirates, got themselves to the World Series, and are matched up against the team that, really, if it wasn't for the fact that they didn't win the World Series in 1990 and lost the World Series in such dramatic fashion in Game 1 with the Dennis Eckersley home run thrown to Kirk Gibson, you may have said that that Oakland Athletics team was a dynasty in that time. Now, you can't call a team a dynasty that wins just one World Series, so that there's no way you could do it. But had they won in 88 and in 1990, like a lot of people thought they should have, the Oakland Athletics were probably the best put-together team of that time. Not just with the Bash brothers of McGuire and Canseco, but the starting pitching staff with Dave Stewart and Bob Welsh and Mike Moore and... You know, guys like Scott Sanderson and Storm Davis who filled in at certain times. The bullpen, which had the depth, not just Eckersley, but guys like Rick Honeycutt. Obviously, Ricky Henderson being back when he was acquired in 1989 from the Yankees, or reacquired. Dave Henderson, Carney Lansford. A very, very deep team. Terry Steinbach. You know, this Oakland Athletics team was the best 
team, the best put together team at that time. But the thing that sucks about it is that they only won one World Series championship. Later on, you'd see the Atlanta Braves, who really became the best put together team in the National League for the 1990s, only winning one World Series championship and the disappointment that people will perceive because of that. Braves did nothing but winning. Win. They lost four World Series, which was a disappointment. The Oakland Athletics did nothing but winning, win between 1988 and 1990, but they only won one World Series. And obviously the biggest disappointment is the loss in the World Series, the four-game sweep at the hands of the Cincinnati Reds. And I really believe in the perfect storm that ends up happening during this World Series. A lot is on Jose Rio, who had the chance to pitch in two games out of the four Obviously, the four-game sweep, a starting pitcher that is the winning pitcher in two games, going a decent amount of distance, is probably a good favorite to win the MVP for a World Series. So, I don't agree with it. I would have given it to Billy Hatcher. Billy Hatcher, for crying out loud, carried the Cincinnati Reds in that World Series. And what stands out about that season is it always seemed to be one player coming out of nowhere to pick the rest of the team up. When Barry Larkin was down, when Eric Davis was down, when Todd Benzinger and Hal Morris and Joe Oliver and Chris Sabo and Ron Oster were down, Billy Hatcher picked them up. He went 9 for 12 in the World Series, a 7.50 average, four doubles, a triple. Obviously, if you bat 7.50 over 12 at bats, your OPS is going to be amazing, and Billy Hatcher's was over 2,000. That's the player I would have given the World Series MVP for and you look at Billy Hatcher over the course of his career in the playoffs. You add the 1986 NLCS Astros against the New York Mets. And Billy Hatcher was incredible. Billy Hatcher's home run off of Jesse Orozco in the 14th inning of Game 6 kept that game going. And you could talk about the good players on that Houston Astro team. Obviously Mike Scott, the Cy Young Award winner that year, throwing a no-hitter on, on a game that the Astros clinched the National League West Division that year. Billy Hatcher was solid. Billy Hatcher still hadn't come to earth yet. Nobody really know, knew who Billy Hatcher was, but Mets fans in the 1986 NLCS you know, were pretty worried every time this guy came up. They're like, this is a pest. This is a guy that is going to give our team a hard time. Imagine how the Oakland Athletics felt in the 1990 World Series because as they're preparing for that World Series against the Cincinnati Reds, they're thinking about the Nasty Boys. They're thinking about Larkin. They're thinking about maybe Jose Rio, maybe Lou Pinello, the manager, saying, hey, you know, uh, this, this guy Pinello kind of knows what he's doing. He took the Cincinnati Reds team that was going nowhere coming into the season, and he got them to the World Series. They're probably thinking about all those different things, and they're probably not thinking about Billy Hatcher, who goes up there and does nothing but rake. Billy Hatcher should have been the MVP in the 1990 World Series. This is the famous Budweiser beer. We know no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste of smoothness and drinkability. You'll find no beer at any cost. So when we were talking about Andrew Luck before, a star quarterback, obviously out of Stanford, probably one of the more ballyhooed quarterbacks that came out of the draft and out of college in the last 20 or 30 years. His career ends at the age of 29. I want to talk about a career that essentially started 
after the age of 30. Steve Young was drafted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the lowly Buccaneers, 16th overall. Oh, I'm sorry. First overall in the 1984 supplemental draft. Obviously, you think of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at that time, and they were bad. They struggled. Things were not looking good for that franchise. Young comes out of BYU, very talented kid. A couple other teams had the opportunity to take, or actually nobody did. Nobody had a chance to take Steve Young because the Bucks had the number one overall pick when it came to the supplemental draft. So they take Steve Young, they put him behind their quarterback, which I believe at the time was Steve DeBerg, and they give him a year or two to develop. 1985 comes, he starts five games, it goes one and four. Doesn't really look like he has it. They give him the reins. Why not? In 1985, Buccaneers are going nowhere. Why not see how far you can get with your young quarterback? Steve goes out there, and the team goes 2-12. Under Young with him as a starting quarterback, obviously not going anywhere again. Tampa Bay Buccaneers draft Vinny Testaverde. They feel like Testaverde is a better option than Young. So Young, still a lot of value. He's only 25 years old. Gets dealt to the San Francisco 49ers. Probably a crushing blow to a guy that probably had high aspirations in regards to being an NFL quarterback. Out of all the teams, where you want to go to, do you really want to go back up Joe Montana? You know, it's like Young getting traded to the Miami Dolphins and backing up Dan Marino. It's like Young getting traded to the Denver Broncos to back up John Elway. As long as Joe Montana is healthy... There's not going to be an opportunity to play for the San Francisco 49ers. And this could have been a turning point in Steve Young's career. As he sits here as a backup for a couple seasons, and a couple seasons turns into, what, about five years, four years? There's a chance that Joe Montana plays until he's 40. If Joe Montana played as long as Tom Brady did at the level that Tom Brady did, Steve Young may have never gotten a chance to play or be the starting quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. I'm sure a time would have come up where Steve Young may have asked for a trade and granted it and got a chance to go to a different team to be their star. Pretty similar to the New England Patriots and Jimmy Garoppolo. You know, Brady's going to be there for a while. They made the decision that Brady's going to stick around. So trade Garoppolo to a team where he has a better opportunity to play. And I think they, the Patriots did a good job by doing that. I feel pretty confident that had the best-case scenario not worked out, Steve Young may have been traded and had the opportunity to play for another team. But if Steve Young got a chance to play for a different team, there's a pretty good chance he's prob probably doesn't become a Hall of Famer. What helped Steve Young out the most was Joe Montana's injury and his chance to lead the San Francisco Giants in that juggernaut team that they had. Uh, unfortunately, you know, if he was traded to a team that probably needed to go to, uh, you know, to to go through some development, the needed to bring in some younger players, and the need to take some time to build a core around Steve Young, probably would have taken a little bit of time. And that time that goes by, 
probably would have taken a chunk out of the rest of Steve Young's career because remember, when he gets a chance to play as the starter for the San Francisco 49ers, he's over 30 years old. And remember, Andrew Luck's career just ended, and he's not yet 30. There's a lot of quarterbacks that probably need to have started by 25 or 26 or 27, or their prime years have probably gone by him. So what ends up happening, a Joe Montana injury at the end of the 1990 season, leading to him missing because of his elbow the entire 1991 season, gives Steve Young a chance to quarterback that team. And it's not like Steve Young ran away with it. You can make the case, hey, Young got his chance and the rest was history. Well, the 49ers were just 5-5 five and five with Young as their quarterback. Steve Bono, the backup, and I know Young was hurt. He dealt with some own injuries that he had that year. Probably some wrinkles of you know, not getting hit that much over the course of the past five seasons. But the team with Steve Bono as their quarterback was 5-1 and one that year. A 10-6 and six team that just missed out on the playoffs. So as Montana's taken a little more time in rehab after missing an entire season, and likely to miss the start of the next season, Steve Young gets himself another chance to quarterback the San Francisco 49ers in 1992. And this was probably the biggest break of his NFL career. Because you're looking at a guy that, hey, probably thought in his own mind he deserved to start in this league, knew he didn't get that chance because he was the backup to Joe Montana. Like I said, you know, if you're backup to Tom Brady, you could be the best quarterback in the world, but you're probably not going to see the field unless somehow Brady decides to retire or he gets hurt. Brady may retire at the end of this year, maybe the end of the next season, but we, we don't know that yet. So if you're sitting there in the number two or three in the depth chart with Tom Brady as your starting quarterback, you know that you're probably not going to get much of a chance to play. So Young gets that chance as that second year starts with Montana not ready. And he took advantage of it. He had probably what you consider his best season, completing over two-thirds of his passes, 25 touchdowns, seven interceptions, kind of building off of the year that he had you know, a year earlier, uh, 107 quarterback rating. He was emerging as one of the better quarterbacks in the National Football League, so as the season goes by and the 49ers are winning, the impossible is happening. I was talking earlier about the Cincinnati Reds winning the 1990 World Series, how the impossible happened then. The impossible was happening here as Steve Young had unseated a guaranteed Pro Football Hall of Famer, a three-time Super Bowl champion, I'm sorry, four-time Super Bowl champion, Joe Montana, as the starting quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. Now, it took Montana to be out over a full season in the National Football League for Young to get a legitimate chance. If Montana was ready day one in training camp, you could say, hey, maybe there's a little bit of a quarterback comp competition, but if things are even and Montana has proven himself healthy, you would be a fool to not start Joe Montana as your starting quarterback, regardless of the season that Steve Young had the year before. Now, his peripheral numbers looked good, but the team was just 5-5 five and five in the 10 games that Young started. And the 49ers had missed the playoffs for the first time in what, about eight years? Montana had no problem getting them to the playoffs. Young and Steve Bono couldn't do that in that one season. So I guarantee you, if Joe Montana was healthy and ready to go for the 1992 season, Steve Young would have not gotten his chance to be the starting quarterback that year. He would have been sitting behind Joe Montana, 
And if Montana had done his job, the job that he had done for a better part of the prior decade, Steve Young probably would have sat there and been traded at the end of the season. But there's no guarantee that if he gets traded, he gets traded to a team that could use him and get the most out of him. He could have been traded to a rebuilding team. He could have been traded to a team that may not have necessarily been on its way or the roster constructed the way the San Francisco 49ers team was. He lucked out that Montana was hurt and he got his opportunity. Obviously, he gets all the credit in the world because he took it and he ran with it. And there was never any doubt again. The fact that he quarterbacked all those games over the course of the 1992 season with Joe Montana holding a clipboard and his, his backup showed you how dominant Steve Young had proven himself. And the fact that the 49ers really had no choice at the end of the season but to move on from Joe Montana. Montana got in the last game a chance to, to play, whatever, second half of the game. But that was Young's team. Young had earned the opportunity to be the quarterback in the playoffs and the quarterback in the future. But it was the series of events that had happened before that that allowed it to happen. If he didn't struggle with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers... And the Buccaneers didn't use a top draft pick on Vinny Testaverde. Then Steve Young may have not been traded to the San Francisco 49ers. And like I said, over the course of those five seasons, it doesn't look very good. We're talking about the chance that Steve Young has to be a starter in the NFL. And like I said, every year goes by as a year older than he is. And when he finally hits age 30... He gets the chance with Montana being out for the season. Like I said, the team misses the playoffs, barely. They were 10-6 and six that year, but were only 5-5 five and five in the games that Steve Young was the starting quarterback. What happened the next offseason by Montana not being ready for the start of that following season gave a legitimate chance for Young to win the job. And when he was starting week one, he took the ball, he ran with it, Became the starting quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers for the next, what, three, six, seven full seasons. And the rest was history. Now he's a pro football Hall of Famer. But I bet you, when he's hitting age 27, 28, 29, that was probably the furthest thing from his mind. Just a reminder that Castrol provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. Castrol, engineer for today's smaller cars. So, Pete Alonzo hit his 42nd home run for the Mets the other day against the Cubs. And obviously, his 42nd home run was the most in a single season for the New York Mets in their history. The Mets have been around since 1962. The prior record was 41 held by Todd Hundley in 1996 and Carlos Beltran in 2006. And I looked at it. And found it fascinating that that number was actually as low as it was. Now, 42 is 42. Pete Alonso hits another 10 home runs. The Mets' single-season home run record will be 52. You know, if he hits three more home runs, it'll be 45, et cetera, et cetera. But I was looking at the totals when you talk about each individual team's single-season home run record, and the Mets, who had sat at 41 before yesterday, was one of the lowest totals. In fact, it was the second lowest total out of any team for their single season home run record. Now, in the, in the days of Google, 
you know, I'd like, I, I, I would have, if it wasn't for Google, asked the question, what team has the lowest home run total for their single season home run record? And I'd love to give out a prize, but the person that's going to give me the answer is some clown that's going to pull it up on their phone and get the answer in a second. I would prefer to ask a question that you'd actually have to use some knowledge in your noggin, and I'd like to reward the person for knowing that the 36 home runs that Steve Balboni hit for the 1986 Kansas City Royals is their single season home run record. And because of that, the Royals, with 36, have the lowest single season home run record in all of Major League Baseball. The Mets were second at 41. And nobody else, and I found this fascinating as well, nobody else has a single season home run record less than 46 in all of Major League Baseball. So the rest of baseball outside of the Royals and the Mets have single season home run records anywhere between the numbers of 46 and 73. You know about Barry Bonds and the San Francisco Giants. You know about Mark McGuire and the St. Louis Cardinals. You know about Roger Maris and the New York Yankees and Sammy Sosa of the Chicago Cubs. So I'm going to go through some other ones real quick. David Ortiz holds the single season home run record for Boston Red Sox with 54. Chris Davis for the Baltimore Orioles at 53. Tampa Bay Rays. Carlos Pena with 46. Jose Bautista for the Toronto Blue Jays with 54. Hank Greenberg, the Detroit Tigers with 58. Chicago White Sox, Albert Bell with 49. The Minnesota Twins, Harmon Killebrew, 49. Cleveland Indians, Jim Tomey, 52. The Oakland Athletics, obviously Philadelphia Athletics, we're going to talk about here. Jimmy Fox with 58. The Houston Astros, Jeff Bagwell, 47. The Seattle Mariners, Ken Griffey Jr., 57. Troy Gloss owns the record for the Los Angeles Angels with 47. Alex Rodriguez for the Texas Rangers with 57. In the National League, Colorado Rockies, the only team with a tie right now for its single season home run record. And that's Larry Walker and Todd Helton who both hit 49. Luis Gonzalez for the Arizona Diamondbacks with 57. Sean Green for the Los Angeles Dodgers with 49. San Diego Padres, Greg Vaughn with 50. The Cincinnati Reds, George Foster, 52. Milwaukee Brewers, Prince Fielder, 50. Pittsburgh Pirates, Ralph Kiner, 54. The Atlanta Braves, Andrew Jones, 51. Miami Marlins, Giancarlo Stanton, 55, 59. Philadelphia Phillies, Ryan Howard with 58. The Washington Nationals, Alfonso Soriano with 46. And of course, Pete Alonso now with the New York Mets with 42. So out of the 30 teams in Major League Baseball, there's only two teams that have a home run record that's less than 46. One of them is the Mets with Pete Alonso, 42 and counting. And then the other one is the Kansas City Royals with Steve Balboni and 36. And I'm going to try a little bit here of multitasking, which I absolutely suck at. But I'm going to try to pull up the Kansas City Royals roster for this season. Because we're talking about we're talking about a team that, or a league that has hit more home runs than anybody in, in, in any season in history. Is there anybody that has a chance? And it's ironic, and actually. 
the Kansas City Royals will set a record this year if Jorge Soler does not get hurt. Jorge Soler at this moment has 36 home runs. That's the same amount of home runs that Steve Balboni hit in 1986. So Soler, who right now is tied, his next home run like Alonzo's home run the other day, will make him the all-time single-season home run leader in the history of the Kansas City Royals franchise. So you're looking at the Royals and the Mets, two teams and individual players that I'm rooting for right now. I want to see how far they can get. Can Soler somehow get to 46? Can Alonzo, who likely, if he doesn't get hurt, should surpass 46? So that all Major League Baseball teams will be on the same level, and each team will have a single-season home run record that is 46 home runs or more. A little bit of a recap of the show today, and I do want to thank everybody for tuning in. As always, we spoke about Andrew Luck and the negligence that was involved with the Baltimore, with the, I'm sorry, Baltimore Colts. Wow, I'm dating myself. I'm looking at a picture of Lenny Moore over here, and I'm thinking of the Baltimore Colts. But obviously the Indianapolis Colts, the team that moved from Baltimore to Indianapolis with a big truck overnight, and Andrew Luck, the Indianapolis Colts did a terrible job in treating their gift. They probably weren't worthy enough of getting this gift. It wasn't. It was something that probably wasn't expected to come to them. If it wasn't for the injury to Peyton Manning, the Indianapolis Colts wouldn't have been anywhere near the top of the draft. Wouldn't have been anywhere near any opportunity to get the number one overall pick and take Andrew Luck and have the quarterback in their future. And they treated him like garbage. They didn't give him the proper protection. They didn't treat Andrew Luck like he was the pet. They didn't treat it like their baby. They let this guy get beat up for a series of years to a point where Andrew Luck is going to have difficulty living the rest of his life outside of football. And anybody with the nerve or audacity to want to blame Andrew Luck for walking away, better at first blame the Indianapolis Colts for the way they treated him. Spoke about Billy Hatcher, underrated postseason player, hit over 452 at-bats in his postseason career. Obviously, 1990 postseason World Series, 1986 NLCS. Should have been the MVP of the 1990 World Series. Cincinnati Reds, Nasty Boys, Jose Rio, Lou Pinella. One of the more unsung and surprising teams to win a World Series in baseball history. And if we're talking about baseball World Series upsets, and maybe teams or unprecedented World Series champions, they would be in the top five. Obviously, the 69 Mets would be in there. Yeah, obviously, if you listened or watched the show before, you know my praise that I give to the 1914 Boston Braves. The biggest upset in the history of professional sports, let alone just baseball. But I would say the 1990 Reds are probably top five in regards to unprecedented and unexpected World Series champions. But they wouldn't have done it without Billy Hatcher. Steve Young, when we talked about Andrew Luck's career ending before the age of 30, Steve Young's career took off after 30 and may not have happened if it wasn't for Joe Montana's injury. Joe Montana missing the entire 1991 season and the start of the 1992 season with his elbow surgery and operation and the whole thing. If it wasn't for that, Young may have not gotten a chance to inherit that great San Francisco 49ers roster. 
And if he doesn't inherit that roster, he doesn't lead them to another Super Bowl, he doesn't lead them to another series of playoff appearances over the course of the better part of the next decade. And he is no way a Hall of Famer. I can't imagine another roster fit that would have been just as good for Steve Young. He could not have just taken over. Unless it was the Denver Broncos taking over for Elway. Unless it was maybe the Miami Dolphins taking over for Marino. But remember, Marino never won anything in the playoffs. John Elway was, you know, led teams deep into the playoffs in the 1980s. But, you know, the early 1990s were not a good time for the Denver Broncos. They weren't out there getting the Super Bowls. Obviously did towards the end of Elway's career. Steve Young, right place at the right time. When he had thought earlier that he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time being Joe Montana's backup. Turned out being completely ideal for him. He probably couldn't have expected that. All-time MLB single-season home run leaders per team. You can check that out on my Twitter feed, at John underscore Pielli. So thank you for tuning in. This is The Passball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. By two ways, one passion food truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. The number is 570-800, I'm sorry, 800-8117, located on Naog Avenue and Green Ridge Street, Grand Pennsylvania, some of the best food. Karen and Jenny do an outstanding job there. Uh, obviously, by St. Aloysius Church and School, Jackson, New Jersey. Uh, you can check out staloysius.org for information and stuff going on at the church. They got a school there, um, registration probably up around this time, but certainly you can check out their website for information. Thank everybody as always for tuning in. Um, pay attention. Um, you're going to see some things going on with my Instagram page. My uh, handle there is John Pielli. I'll be sharing some more videos. I'm going to be doing some things that is going to, uh, I guess, increase the volume and maybe adding a little bit of features to my page and things that I'll be able to do. So check that out as well. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side.